0: ...615. Three Sundays ago, when I started teaching from Isaiah 55, I told you that's it's God's own gospel sermon. That was a phrase that Charles Spurgeon used regarding Isaiah 55. Uh, there are lots of tracts written, there are lots of books on the gospel, uh, but this is God's own appeal to sinners to respond to the work of the servant on the cross. I think it was Jim Elliott, the missionary who went, among other missionaries, down into the jungles of the Amazon. And he was speared to death along with his uh, several other missionaries while he was down there. Jim Elliott had written, Christ is what he wrote. But in our case, the servant, or Jesus, paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. This is a call from God Almighty Himself to sinners to respond to the servant's perfect work on a cross. Our only hope, my only hope of the forgiveness of sins, of being reconciled to an altogether holy God, is based upon what God did in the Son. It's the story that you read in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And the appeal is given based upon that work. In Isaiah, it's, it's an appeal based upon Isaiah 53 where you read about the shepherd giving his life for the sheep. The shepherd bringing the sheep back into the fold to the Father. And it's it's that great work of the servant of Jesus upon which that appeal is made. I told you uh, three weeks ago that there's an unmistakable and striking parallel between Isaiah 54 and 55 and the last two chapters of the of all of the Bible, of, of the New Testament, Revelation 21 and 22. And what that suggests is this, as an important lesson, that Isaiah, in all these occasions, when he talks about, when he writes to the Israelites, when he writes to the Jews, though you will be taken into exile by the Babylonians, that's not the end of the story. Because God is going to bring you out of exile and you're going to come back into the promised land. Jerusalem will rejoice and be filled with laughter because God is going to bring back his people. But it's greater than the fact that Israelites come back from Babylon. That's only pointing to a much greater event and that is a new heaven and a new earth created by God himself. So that's a small taste of what God is doing on a grander scale in the person and the work of Christ. The parallel looks like this. Verse 1 reads, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Revelation puts it this way. Chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The language is similar because they're talking about the same event. Revelation isn't celebrating one day, way back in Israel's history, God brought them out of slavery or out of out of captivity in Babylon. It's celebrating an event that is yet to take place. This event of a a new creation and a new heaven and a new earth. But there needs to be a response before that takes place. So three weeks ago, I gave you some essential conclusions. I'm going to rehearse those now. Number one, God has promised and prepared an eternal new order and reality. The earth and life on earth as we now know it and experience it will not go on forever forever. That ought to be plain. We all know people who have passed away, loved ones who have passed away, friends who have passed away. Perhaps the older you get, the more you realize the futility or the frailty of life, how you one day will pass away. We can busy ourselves and pretend like it's not going to happen, but cognitively, we know life on this earth is not forever. In light of that fact, God has prepared something that is forever That's point number one, the essential point number one. Secondly, entrance into the eternal order of what God has prepared is not automatic. The fact that you die doesn't qualify you for heaven. The fact that you die is evidence that you have sin disease. The fact that you die is evidence that you're in rebellion against God. So, entrance into this eternal reality requires a response. Now, before the event of death takes place, a response of faith, of belief in who God is and what He has revealed to be true. Thirdly, in both texts, that is Isaiah 55 and Revelation 22 and verse 17, God's appeal is gracious. We don't deserve it on any level, and it's urgent. It's gracious and it's urgent. And with that in mind, I'm going to have you listen to the audio chapter 55. He's reading from the New International Version. So you do have that bulletin insert if you want to follow along. It's on the back side of uh, what Nancy put in there regarding the work day. And I've got one somewhere, but at any rate... Listen to uh listen to a, a David Suchet reads Isaiah 55 and what I want you to listen for, because it's going to play into our service a little bit later. Listen for the emotion. What is, what is coming across? I think Hannah told me three weeks ago, she tried to listen as if this is God speaking to us. It's not God speaking through Isaiah, the prophet. It's not God speaking through an apostle. This is God's own appeal. It's God's own voice in Isaiah 55 appealing to sinners to respond in a right way. Isaiah 55.
1: Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord While he may be found, call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Endure
0: forever. Isaiah 55 such a good chapter. So we're going to use that as the basis for a celebration of the Lord's Supper part of what we just read. Number 1 from verse 1 there's a recognized need. Um, Part of what's taking place when we observe the Lord's Supper is we're recognizing though I am a sinner saved by grace, and that's assuming that you have responded in faith to Christ, you still are in need of God's grace. When God forgives you of your sins, when you're in right relationship with Him through Christ, it doesn't mean now you're on your own. I continue to need God's grace, I continue to thirst after a righteousness. And a joy and a peace that only he can provide. So number one, when Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're again recognizing a new and a fresh. We have a need. We have a thirst. Secondly, it's recognizing a certain deficiency. Uh, I have no money. I don't deserve from from God, any of His graces and His mercies based upon my own merit, based upon my own righteousness. So I have a thirst. There's nothing I can do to satisfy my own thirst. I am deficient. I recognize that again as a Christian when I celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, there's recognized provision because God promises milk and water and wine. He he promises eating rich food. Without cost, without price. That's carrying over into verse 2, which isn't on the screen. And then lastly, it it promises a recognized outcome. That your soul will be satisfied. That your soul will receive life in the first part of verse 3. All of those elements Christians are remembering and celebrating when they participate of the Lord's Supper. My need, my deficiency, God's provision, and God's promised outcome. For all those reasons, Henry's going to play on the piano as we partake, but we'll serve you first. And then uh, we'll start with this side. If you want to step out the center aisle, if you're a believer, and then you can go back down the the side aisle. This side we'll do second. Uh, Eve is going to help me. Now we'll continue in Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to start up with verse 1. We may not really get past verse 1. We'll see how it goes. It's unfortunate that in the majority of translations, the very first verse is not adequately translated, if at all. In the ESV, they translate the word come, and it's not the word come at all. You've got the word come to the waters, you've got come buy and eat, you've got come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the word coming, this this motion, this response of movement is necessary, But it's not the first word that Isaiah wrote. It's not the first word spoken by the Lord when he calls out for individuals to come. I kind of told you at the beginning of the service, I pay attention to how churches, what they do when they begin their worship service. What's the first song that they sing? And in this appeal that God makes, the very first word is, is not translated correctly, if at all. Now, some Bibles it is. If you have an old King James or a new King James or a new American Standard, your Bible is preferable in this particular case. I'm going to show you the new King James Version. It reads, Ho! Everyone who thirsts come to the waters, and so on. The first word isn't come. The first word is ho! And some more modern translations give some pretty crazy ways to render that first word. Ho! Some it. Hey there! Uh, come to the, uh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. How much difference does it make whether we translate the word "come" or we translate the word "ho"? Um, the word is used in the Old Testament 51 times. Almost half of those times all occur in the Book of Isaiah. 21 times in Isaiah. 50 some in all of the Old Testament. Uh, It's a very important word. uh, According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, the one, all words, especially in Hebrew, have a range of of ways you could translate the word. Uh, It's often translated woe. In Isaiah, it's most often translated woe. But the one word that maybe captures the whole spectrum of how the word ought to be understood would be the word alas, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament. Alas, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. It provides a little bit different meaning, I think, because the way it was read by David Suchet, if uh, you kind of paid attention and tried to get a sense of what was being communicated, the appeal sounded very heartfelt. Come. Come. Come, but here you've got the word alas, which seems more uh, that there's he's the speaker's distraught. The speaker is, is, uh, is making this urgent appeal and it seems to be falling largely on deaf ears. In the Hebrew, it's the word oy. And perhaps you're familiar with the Yiddish expression where a Jewish person may say, oy vey. This is the first part of that, that oy, alas. When a Yiddish speaker, when a Jewish speaker in New York City says, oy vei, it means they're distraught. It means something's not making sense. It means something's not being understood. It's being filled with anguish. Oy vei, how could this be happening? That's the word oy, alas, everyone who thirsts. Let me show you the first time the word is used in the book of Isaiah. This oy is found in chapter one. It reads like this. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Alas! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. When I look at how Isaiah starts... When it describes the condition, not just of Israel, the condition of humankind, my condition, your condition. I am sick from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And then in Isaiah 55, alas, your solution is here. It's in the work of my son. It's in the servant who died as a sacrifice to take away sin. Alas, come, respond. Respond. That's Isaiah 55, in light of how how Isaiah started off in chapter 1. It also reminds me of a similar uh, scenario, this time by the prophet Jeremiah, though the word isn't used, he's describing the exact same condition. Jeremiah chapter 2 reads this way. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then here's where you could put in the, Oy vey! Be appalled, O heavens, at this! Be shocked! Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's the idea where, maybe in our culture, one way to capture the sense, the why would somebody do this situation, is some people have rain barrels at the bottom of their gutter. And it's a way to recycle water, collect water, especially during times of drought, and maybe there's water restrictions. And if you have this big rain barrel, that's like a cistern. And all the water that may fall, it runs off into this rain, uh, this rain, this um. Cistern, this bucket, whatever that thing's called now. Uh, and imagine yourself being very thirsty, and you have the choice of you can dip a cup, take the lid off of that barrel, dip a cup in there and have a drink, or there's a spigot there with fresh water out of a fountain. And somebody's saying, well, enjoy this fresh water. It's fresh water, right out, you know, it's, it's spring, it's clean, it's good. And you're like, no, I'd rather dip out of the rain barrel. It's like, ugh. The rain, that water's been in there for weeks. I mean, it doesn't smell real good. It doesn't even look real good. I'm like, no, that's what I prefer. That's what the Lord is saying to his people. You'd rather dip out of the rain barrel for a drink of water, this dirty, not real clean water. We played Frisbee. There was the whole end of the the goal line on one side was was about ankle deep on half of it. And it's like, I'd rather dip my water out of there than come inside for a drink even though I'm thirsty. Like, who would do that? And that's what the Lord is accusing his people of. You'd rather drink out of the rain barrel than receive this fresh spring water that only comes from me. Alas, if you're thirsty, come to the waters. You don't have to drink out of the rain barrel. You don't have to dip your cup out in the field to get the little bit of water that's kind of smelly by this time. I can provide fresh living water for you. It's a situation that's uh, uh, found in the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus comes to the well and he is thirsty and he asks for a drink. And then Jesus offers her a drink of living water. of of fresh water, of water where if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. This idea of thirsting has the idea of recognizing a need, recognizing, you know what? I've been building cisterns. I've been trying to satisfy my thirst by doing something on my own, and it leaks, and it's insufficient, and it stinks. And I recognize I have a thirst I can't satisfy. And God is saying, alas, here's your solution. Here's what you're looking for. It's found in me and in my son. It's found in what my son has done in Isaiah chapter 53. This is a picture of a well with a lid over the top of it and the Samaritan's woman's uh, jar that she came to collect water. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water I will give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But she has to recognize her thirst. And so the conversation ensues. And Jesus says, well, go call your husband and come back. And she says, sir, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in that you have no husband. In fact, you've had four husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she's like, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) But she's recognizing that she has a thirst. What she's what she's looked to satisfy her life in these relationships are broken cisterns. And they always fall short. And she is now encountering one who can satisfy a thirst of her soul that can't be found in a relationship. That's John chapter 4. It's painful to face the reality of being wrong. Uh, the woman in in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, faces a reality that she's been wrong about what is the meaning of life? And that's hard for anybody and everybody. Uh, we've all been wrong. I've been wrong on any number of occasions. I'm, I think I've got something understood in the Bible, or I think this is an important thing in life. Uh, I think this is uh, the way to view a certain thing. And, and I assemble uh, what I think is evidence that supports what I believe because it's a confirmation bias and, and you're predisposed to it. And at some point, it may be that you find out you're wrong. And that's a painful experience. I had someone in a conversation this week described this experience. We had a conversation and this person was discovering at least if I'm right, if what I was telling this person what the Bible said is right, that they were wrong. And this person described that as I'm shocked, I'm unhappy, I'm broken, I'm whipped. We've all been there where we found out we weren't just wrong, we were miserably, miserably wrong. Now, what happens in those cases is sometimes we double back and we refuse to acknowledge what is true. We refuse to acknowledge that the cistern I've been digging is broken and it leaks. It's kind of a strange phenomena. Sociologists, psychologists talk about this type of a thing in, in history, Consistently, there have been individuals that say Christ is coming back at such and such a time, at such and such a place. And some people will sell off their goods. You don't need goods in the kingdom of heaven. May, they may rack up a lot of debt because it's all going to be gone as soon as Christ comes back, exactly as promised. And they go wait up on a mountain and he doesn't come back. And you would think in that moment those individuals would say, I've been duped, I've been had. This person was false. It was false teaching and a false teacher. But psychologically, that doesn't happen as often as you think. What happens is they somehow reason it out why it didn't take place like they thought it would take place. And they remain loyal to that tradition. That's an amazing thing. And we're all predisposed to do that on some level where there are some things that are so hard to believe it could possibly be true, we rather would commit ourselves to a broken cistern than what God said is the, is the living water of life. So it's painful to admit the reality of being wrong. Jesus or uh, God the Father says, "'Come buy and eat. "'Come buy wine and milk without money and without price.'" What is taking place that we're buying something, we're making a purchase, but it's a purchase made without money and without price. Number one, what is being communicated is you aren't actually contributing anything to acquire what is being offered. What is being offered is all of grace. There's no merit, there's no righteousness, there's no good works. Somehow you aren't earning the right to receive what is being promised in this great exchange. That's number one on the list. Verse 3, is explained this way. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. You're making a purchase by listening. You're making a purchase by inclining your ear. And responding to what is, what is being told you as true, though it goes against all the way culture lives. Because all world religions are based upon, you live a certain way, you live a good meritorious life, you're good to your neighbor, you do these things, and you earn a place in the kingdom of heaven. And what is being offered here has nothing to do with you earning a place in the kingdom of heaven. It's just listening to what God has done in the person of the Son listening to how the son died as a payment for sin. It's listening and believing you can't contribute. That's what uh, John and Ryan, my sons, when they lived in Nashville, I think it was Ryan's church, he had a pastor there that had a saying regarding this kind of a concept. He said, salvation, uh, salvation is the free gift, free gift that will cost you everything. Salvation is God's free gift, that will, uh, free gift, but it will cost you everything. There's no, it will cost you nothing on the front end. It's just listening and believing. But believing the gospel will change your life. It will change the way you think. It will change your priorities. It will change your goals. It will change your motivations. It will cost you everything on the backside because it produces that kind of a change. Romans 10 puts it this way, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you want to receive eternal life as accomplished by the Son, read about it in all of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. If you don't if you want to know how do I acquire this? You need to expose yourself to the word of God. You need God doesn't save apart from his word. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and applies it to hearts. So I If I'm in that position, I need to open God's word. And even as a Christian, I need to do this. I need to open God's word and say, God, by your spirit, teach me what is true. Reorient my thinking so that I'm not thinking like the world. I'm not even thinking like church culture or church tradition. Have me think according to what you say is true in your own word. God uses his word to affect change in people's hearts, in sinners' hearts, in Christian hearts. He doesn't do it apart from his word. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 6. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You're telling us we need to do the work of God. What is the work of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work of God? To believe. Not to contribute, not to earn a certain amount of righteousness that you bring, but to believe. To believe what he's done. That is the work of God. He asked the question, this is where we were three Sundays ago, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? And I told you then, I'll tell you again today, that's a great question. Why do we do it? Why would we spend money on things that are knowingly going to be bankrupt? Why do we spend our labor and our energy on things that obviously are deficient and broken and unable to satisfy like we want them to satisfy? Why do people do that? We do it partly because everybody else is doing that. And we think, well, somebody's got to win the lottery. I mean, you can't win if you don't play. So... Why do we do that? I gave you two reasons last week. I'm going to suggest there's actually three reasons, three motivations for why we do everything that we do. There's different ways you could look at this. I think uh, different scenarios you could phrase it different ways. But I'm going to suggest there are three motivations that explain why you do everything that you do. Why you're here today. Three motivations. Uh, why whatever you've got planned in the afternoon is the result of one of three motivations. The first motivation is this. You're running away from some pain or emptiness. Some people, in fact, uh, it it, it exhibits itself on, on a wide spectrum what that looks like. Some people are driven to success because they're running from some pain. They're running from some shame or hurt. And so to counteract that or to not think about that, to not have to deal with that, they are driven to succeed because they don't want to think about their pain. It's the old saying, hurt people hurt people. There's truth in that. People that hurt others are probably motivated by some hurt in their own past. It's also true many, very often that people that are given to addictions, uh, debilitating addictions, whether it be chemical addictions, uh, whether it be alcoholic addictions, whatever the addiction may be, it, very often they're running from some pain or emptiness. Ryan, my son, spent a couple summers up in Alaska as a bicycle tourist for the cruise ships. And when he was up there, he was with a very eclectic group, a group uh, of individuals that were working this job from all over the country. In some cases, some of these people had traveled all over the world. And they were, they were meeting there, and Ryan would say, that was the most broken group of people I've ever experienced. And Ryan was pretty broken himself, so he fit in well. But there were all these very broken people, and many of them were traveling the world because they were running from some pain. There was one individual there that got up early every morning and went down to, I don't know if it was exactly a lake or something like a lake, he went down there and it seemed to be this private meditation every morning. And Ryan, you know, I don't know if it was the first year or the second year, but he he went down there with him. Like, he met him down there one time and wanted to know, like, what's the story? Why Why do you do this? And he told the story, he's like, well... I'm here because my mother died by drowning and I come down here every day to remember what it might have been like. He was running from a pain that had devastated his life and he didn't know how to deal with it. So a lot of people are motivated by their pain. They're running away from something. We've all got pain. It may be that some of what you do is you're running from your pain rather than dealing with it. The second motivation is kind of the opposite. It's running toward... What is believed will bring significance and meaning. I'm somehow trying to achieve something or acquire something because I believe if I do it well enough, it will satisfy my life and bring meaning.
1: Uh, everybody
0: here's done both. You are probably more predisposed to one than the other. Uh, I've done both, but I'm much more in the second camp than the first camp. By God's grace, I was raised in a nice Christian family. Uh, I mean we weren't perfect by any means cuz no family is but it was a it was a good upbringing a very traditional upbringing I had lots of I I received lots of mercies from God but a lot of my life I've spent striving after things that I think if I only have those things or enough of those things it will bring meaning and significance to my life and I'm always wrong because those things always pass it doesn't mean there isn't pleasure and satisfaction for a while because there is uh, there's a verse in scriptures in Hebrews that there's pleasures in, in sin for a season. You will find some satisfaction by striving for other things other than being reconciled to God through Christ. You will find some satisfaction, but it'll never last. It'll always leave you empty in the end. So the third solution, the third motivation, is living all of life for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink You do everything for the glory of God. That's the third motivation. That's where Christians are meant to live. Not that we're running from pain, not that we're trying to find some substitute for what only Christ can provide, but we are doing everything for the glory of God. Now you can meditate, and I want you to meditate on this for basically almost your entire life, really. Because how do I know which one of these I'm really fitting in? When I ride my bicycle, why am I doing it? Am I trying to, to substitute, find meaning and significance in riding a bicycle uh, when I should be finding it in Christ? Or can I ride a bicycle to the glory of God? What does that even look like, to ride a bicycle to the glory of God? That I can thank God for, for health, the means to be able to have a bicycle, for the camaraderie of riding with un, other individuals. I think on one given ride, it could be to the glory of God, and another given ride, it's an escape from what God wants me to do. The heart is deceitfully wicked. I know that's true. So it's very easy to say, oh, I do it all to the glory of God. All the while, I've sacrificed the glory of God. Because if my priorities aren't right, if if I don't have time to spend time in His Word, if I don't have time to pray, I'm only deceiving myself if I think I'm riding my bicycle to the glory of God. If I don't have time to worship and be with God's people, I'm deceiving myself into thinking, uh, that other activities are done to the glory of God. But there's, there's a lot of uh, margin there. There's a lot of leeway as to what Christians can and cannot do. I think you have to wrestle with that because everything you do, everything on your calendar, everything on your agenda, falls into one of those three categories, one of those three motivations. Ecclesiastes is a book written about the meaning of life He has lots of statements in there about what will not satisfy. I think I could read a couple of them to you. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You can't travel enough places that your eye will be satisfied. It's satisfied for a moment. I go to the beach. I've never been to the Gulf Coast. First time I'd been. It was a beautiful beach. The waves rolling in were beautiful. Sometimes the sky was beautiful. But I'm not satisfied. We're going back next year, Lord willing. Uh, You can see whatever sight you see, and it will not satisfy. You know, what you hear will not satisfy you. You can't listen to the same music your entire life long. You've got to have something more. You've got to have something additional, something else. There has to be a new wave because the ear is not satisfied with hearing. Ecclesiastes says... Uh, Yet there is no end to a man's toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. Again, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. On and on in Ecclesiastes, the things that will not satisfy, that we're chasing after rather than responding to the appeal that God makes from Isaiah 53 into Isaiah 55. Augustine, St. Augustine wrote a book called The Confessions. I've got a copy of that book. I wanted you to see, get some sense as to how big this book is. It's uh, basically Augustine's own uh, autobiography about his life, about his uh, trying to dig cisterns for himself and find meaning to life. So it's a big book. Uh, It actually consists of all these small books put into one. Uh, So Augustine says something about the meaning of life. This entire book starts off with... A phrase that many of you are familiar with, I'll give it to you in in this initial paragraph. All of all of what Augustine wants you to know starts off like this Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom infinite. And you would man praise. Man, but a particle of your creation. Man that bears about him his mortality, the witness of his sin, the witness that you resist the proud. Yet would man praise you, he but a particle of your creation. And then he makes this famous phrase, sentence. You awaken us to delight in your praise, for you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Ne'er true words were spoken that were not inspired directly by the Holy Spirit of God. Your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in Christ. So that Paul is able to say, I've lived with much and I've lived with very little. I've learned that in Christ I can be content. It's nice to have God's mercy showered on you. I love it. I'm grateful when God showers his grace and his mercy in my life. But at the end of the day, the only thing I need is Christ. Christ alone, Christ alone at the end of the day. Because that is what gains me entrance into that, that age, that world, which does not change, which never perishes. Peace with God through Christ. What are your comments and questions? Jonathan. Well, in my mind, the connection is: uh, Why are you? Why are you trying? What What you need is what I've provided. What I have. What I've accomplished. All of the the most All of the most significant answers to life are found in what I've done, and you're trying to do it on your own. Why would you do that? Alas, like this doesn't make sense. partly that i think it also you know if you go with the word ho you know hey there the idea it's like a it's like a middle eastern marketplace where you've got vendors that are calling out and they're trying to convince you what you need is what i've got and and you're busy and and you're acting like you don't need this and these vendors are trying to convince you this is the one thing you need more than anything else those vendors are crying out because we don't know what our real need is so god is crying out alas oh what you need is what I've provided, what only I can give. And all you have to do is listen. You're going to buy without cost, without price. Um, I don't know how many Gilligan's Islands fans are here. Like, I... Okay. Okay. Um, I watched every episode who knows how many times. There really weren't that many seasons of Gilligan's Island. But there was one episode on Gilligan's Island where there was a Japanese war guy that didn't realize the war was over. He thought the war was still going on. He wound up on Gilligan's Island, and he captured all of them except Skipper and Gilligan. So the other five are captured into this bamboo prison that was uh, wired with grenades all the way around. So if they tried to squeeze out, the grenade would blow off, and they'd all die. And so Skipper and Gilligan, their job is to rescue the other five from this Japanese guy that thinks the war's still going on. And and Skipper goes, and and the Japanese guy is asleep up in the tree, and he's like digging in the sand. He's going to try to dig out this tunnel. And Gilligan goes over to the Japanese guy, and he he gets the key from around his neck. And he goes over to the padlock and Skipper's like, come on, Gilligan, we got to dig him out. You know, like he's quiet and he's digging just furiously. Gilligan unlocks the padlock. All five get out and they all go stand around the Skipper who's just digging furiously until he realizes all these footprint, all these feet are around him and he looks up and he realizes he's already free. That's kind of what this is like. We're like the skipper. We are digging furiously to try to find a solution to a problem. And the answer was provided by Christ because he has the key of what? Sin, death, and hell. He is the key of life. He is the water of life. He is the bread of life. The solution is in him and we're digging furiously and we'll never accomplish anything. Why do we do that? Alas! The solution is in Christ. Somebody else? See, without that question, you would have never got that Gilligan's Island story. (laughs) Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.